0: Time to get serious. We've got a serious subject this morning. And it's what was being sung about the we're going to be looking at celebrating the Lord's table, Lord's supper. And I wanted to devote the message to that very thing that we're going to be doing. And I'd like to start by just reading out of 1st Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 26 to get us going and then we're obviously going to wind up back there when we Actually, do the Lord's Supper. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll stop right there for now. Now, in our Bible, you know, it's composed of 66 books and letters inspired by God, uh, of which Jesus Christ is the central theme. And I want to look at the communion service from that aspect tonight throughout scriptures, not everything. We could be here for weeks if we did that. But the person and work of Christ is woven like a thread just throughout all of scripture. From Genesis right on through Revelation, he's there. He's there. He's, like I say, he is the central thing. Matter of fact, Jesus is even called the word. You know, John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then later on, verse 14, it says the word, meaning referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Revelation 19, 13, describing his second coming, it says where he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. He is the living Word. Again, he is the central theme of Scripture. And of him, when we talk about the personal work of Christ, we'll be focusing primarily on his work this morning. That work he did on the cross. That work, too, is also woven through the Old Testament. And it's just point blank given in the new okay that is the new testament now back in first corinthians eleven twenty three, 23 where it says for i received from the lord right off the bat he's saying that's a claim of divine authorship i received from the lord very often paul will say things like that that's a point of emphasis i want to make this thing perfectly clear corinth this came from god he says which i delivered to you remember, which I delivered, speaking in a time past from the writing of this letter. So this, this, uh, com- the, the way communion, the Lord's table, was supposed to be celebrated, they knew about. Now, approximately three years prior to the writing of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth teaching them when he founded this church. And so, uh, but, like so many areas of the Christian walk, the Corinthians had managed to mess that up as well. If you're familiar at all with uh, 1 Corinthians, from start to finish, it is just one uh, rebuke after another, after another, after another. Remember, even Dan in his message last week about uh, you know, chapter 13, which is commonly referred to by many, I think, or understood as being the, uh, you know, the wedding uh, chapter. <laughs> Actually, it too was a rebuke, trying to set them straight as hey you don 't know what love 's all about, and this one too, even over the communion supper, the lord 's table, there was divisions, and you go back back from chapter one all the way through it 's division after division after division after division, the Div- divisive church matter of fact, look at verses eighteen through twenty two here in chapter eleven where it says For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Whatever, what, do you, not, do you not have houses in which you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. In other words, they were taking the Lord's Supper. And they were, in Scripture, it's often called, like in, in Peter and in Jew, they call it love feasts. They did that back then, where they actually made a dinner out of it, similar to what we're doing in the potluck here, except it became a mockery in Corinth. It became a mockery. And then people were bringing food, not sharing it, poor people were left out, and it became a mess. People were actually, instead of remembering Christ by drinking the wine out of the cup, they were getting drunk. You see, I mean, they just, they just made a total mockery out of the Lord's table. So... Uh, this lesson that we get could have been actually, uh, when you talk when you think about it, again, First Corinthians also was one of those very early letters written. And First uh, Corinthians, and you know the way, things were slow getting passed out. There, there could have been like Corinth might not have even had, I don't know if they had a copy of, of any one of the four Gospels or not Matthew and Mark were the first two that they figured were written. But uh, they could have been reading around about that same time. So we just don't know for sure. But then now, in verse, when we get to verse 23 through 26, Paul is now going to remind them of the solemnity of this ordinance. Like, hey, this is a solemn thing we're doing. This is, this is just not some fun and games. He's going, verse 23 said, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed. He starts off, in the night in which he was betrayed. I mean, what... What a night that was. I mean, much anguish and pain uh, was heaped upon Jesus that night and the next day following. Uh, it began really with the betrayal. Then it went to the agony in the garden. The arrest, the that mockery, that kangaroo court of a trial, uh, the beatings, the scourging, and then ultimately the executed as a criminal on the cross. But the worst of it all was that... The sinless Son of God bore our sins on that cross. That was the worst punishment of it all. A holy, righteous God took on sin. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin. Okay? And and what we're remembering this morning, we need to think about this. What we're remembering this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper is the most significant moment in redemption history. It really is. His crucifixion and resurrection. It's the most significant, therefore, it is not to be taken lightly. We never want this ordinance to be lightly regarded as something just tacked onto an end of a service. I hope, it, I'm not saying it is here, but I just really would don't want that to happen. You know the only thing, familiarity breeds contempt. You, know, you, get, you get something, it becomes a routine, this should not be routine at all. It should be every, every time we meet around the Lord's table should be a special time because of what we're doing. We're remembering, like it says, the body and blood of our Lord. Now, let's look at some of the background of this. Now, the background, where, where did this all begin? Well, i I say it began in eternity past. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. That great sermon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, first sermon the church ever heard, Acts 2, 22. We're just going to pick a little bit out of there. Uh, man, this, this sermon by itself would be a great sermon to just go through one day. It's just a magnificent, magnificent call to salvation. But Acts 2, 22 to 24... Right in, that, right in the middle of that sermon, Peter says to the crowd, which is probably 98% Jewish, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man... Now, here's, here's the critical part. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. But again, why did Jesus go to the cross? Because it was God's predetermined plan that he go there. Why? Well, to uh, facilitate our salvation. So, too, our salvation was part of the predetermined plan of God. If you are saved, you are no accident. (laughs) You are part of God's plan. You are providential. How does that make you feel? So, next time time you have low self-esteem, think about who you are in Christ. You're part of God's providential plan. I mean, that's... Pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? And now look at... I mean, I'll just read you. Ephesians 1, 4 through 8 says, Just as he chose us... That's he, that's the Father... Chose us in him... That's Christ... Before the foundation of the world... That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption of sons... Through Jesus Christ to himself. What was his motivation? According to the kind intention of his will... To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. If we only knew. I mean, and that's the words of scripture, which he lavished on us. And I'm going to look at two things. I'm going to go into the Old Testament, but I want to look at, I'm going to spend most of my time looking at some passages that, are types and symbols of what we're celebrating. But I'm going to start with two that are just straightforward prophecies of the crucifixion of Christ. Let's look at the, start with one that I think we're all familiar with Psalm 22. And if you're not, we need to be. It's, it's one of those Psalms that, one uh, of those passages of scripture that it, it would do us well to just always have in mind to go to because it is so clear. It is so clear. And this, this passage can be used for a couple of things out there. Well, well, if you have any Jewish friends, the two I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at Psalm 22, then we're going to move forward to Isaiah, Isaiah 53. almost got a little British, Isaiah. Um, you know, but anyway, I was listening to a couple of them this week. <laughs> Isaiah, yeah. Okay, but Psalm 22, I said that one right. I'm just teasing if you're from Britain, I'm sorry. <laughs> Psalm 22, I'm just going to highlight, not going to read, but look where it starts off. I'm just going to walk, pick out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? That's Matthew, that's Matthew 27. And you go through it in verse, let's pick it up in verse six, where he goes, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. And once again, verse seven, it says, all who see me, sneer at me they sh- they separate with the lip they wag the head saying commit yourself to the Lord let him deliver him let him re- rescue him because he delights in him you go back in Matthew 27 you read that's part remember he was at the cross they walked in front of the cross just wagging their heads sneering scoffing that's that's virtually what exactly what said. verse 14 where it says, uh, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you just lay me in the dust of death. That's a, that's a better description of crucifixion than we get in the New Testament. New Testament didn't describe it because written in the first century, everybody that read it knew what crucifixion looked like. They didn't have to describe it. But this, were in the time of Psalm 22, in the time of David, this was unknown to David. But this is, this is what happens. Stretched out, your bone, the bones would get stretched out. You would have just severe thirst because, they, you're, because then you would start sinking back. And, every, and they, that's why they kept pushing up. And, and it, it's just an awful, agonizing event, and, which could actually go on for days, uh, depending. But uh, anyway, again, just an, just an exact description and then look at verse 16 they pierced my hands and my feet i mean when did that happen to david uh answer never <laughs> i mean um how about this one they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots how about that one i mean and then well we go on from there. I'll just, just one more. Verse 22, it says, I will tell of thy name to my brethren. Well, what's that? Well, you move through, that's uh, the resurrection. Anyway, Psalm, Isaiah, from Psalm, now let's move to Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 52, 13. And again, any one of these passages is, is a message all by itself. But, uh, I just wanted to set this up as like an introduction. The message will start soon. Isaiah fifty-two, thirteen. This is the last of uh, the, what is called the Servant Songs in Isaiah. There's four of them. And um, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Right here, if that's, that is a very when you read the whole context of this, it's a it's very much a parallel to uh, uh, Philippians two. The Lord will be high and lifted up. Why? Because He emptied Himself. Okay, we celebrate the emptying this morning, and so. As he said, we'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any other man, his form more than the sons of men. Marred there I means so battered and bruised and scarred that he, he scarcely resembled being human. That, that's what that passage is. That's what that phrase is actually teaching us. And then it goes on uh, to say... Um, Verse 4 of, Isaiah, of chapter 53 now, because it's all part of that same one, that same song. It starts in, in verse 13 of 52, goes all the way to the end of 53. That's that same, that's the one whole song, song, which is called the Song of the Servant. And it goes, surely our, verse 4, surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. For he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. One of the songs we just sung picked that up nicely. Um, The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Why was that necessary? Well, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We could sing. We sing. We could sing that song today. It applies to us. It applies to everyone. He died for. This is has a particular Jewish context, and the, without getting off, I, I know I shouldn't do this. I'm sliding off my notes a little bit, but I promise not to go too far. But this song, to get its full flavor, needs to be understood. Number one, who's it written to? Obviously, Isaiah to the Jews. This will be. This, this will have special meaning to those that go to this and sing this. And I, wouldn't, I would not be surprised they put this to music when Israel finally realizes their kingdom. And they finally come to the, to the recognition, oh my goodness, what have we done? We, we had our Messiah and we killed him. I mean, they have that national thing about them that we probably we don't understand really. But it's real and they're going to one day come to the recognition, my Lord, my Lord, what have we done? What have we done? And this is what's going to come out of it. This, this is the kind of thing they're going to sing and say and preach. And um, it'll be a beautiful thing. But moving on, verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Huh. Well, then let's go to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet we did not, he did not open his mouth That sound familiar? Like a lamb he is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep he he is silent before his shears. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Wow. So he did not open his mouth. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? Considered what? That he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was drew it's there another one his grave was assigned with wicked men what would happen to those that were crucified they were just dumped into that massive grave Um, was assigned with wicked men yet he was with a rich man in his death why because he had done no violence neither was there any deceit in his mouth you remember the story don't you He was taken down from the cross and put in wealthy Joseph Arimathea's grave that he purchased for himself. Okay? Um, Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then here, and we're not going to go any further, but here it says, uh, He will see his offspring. He will see his offspring, which again, which we saw him die, put in the grave of the rich man, but yet he will see. Why? Because he will rise again. It's all here. It's it's all here. It's all here. And again, like I say, I could go on this, I don't dare. I need to get back to my notes or I'll get in trouble. Now, now we're going to look at some Old Testament types and symbols. First of all, I want to go back. I'll give a definition of a type. A type is an actual historical event or a person that in some way or ways symbolizes or anticipates a latter occurrence, uh, particularly an Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament event. That's a type. Um, We're going to start by looking at the very first recorded sacrifice in Scripture, and for that one, we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And I'd just like to walk from Genesis, not doing too, not too crazy, but just, just stopping a few places along the road and work our way right back into the New Testament and eventually back into 1 Corinthians 11. Now, Genesis chapter 4... Verses 3 to 5. Here's a story that you may be filled with, may not. The story of Cain and Abel. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in at verse 3 of chapter 4. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the, of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering... But, for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, so Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell okay his countenance fell that one countenance fell doesn't mean he just his jaw dropped or he got a sad face. What that's saying is he went into he was inside, he was seething he was internal rage was going on in there he and that rage eventually popped out when he killed Abel, right? But that's, that one, it just, yeah. He's one of those, I guess you can say, doesn't handle rejection well. He just, no, he's just not good. Now, question I ask about, we got Abel's offering. Look back at, look at verse 4. Now, Abel, on his part, brought the firstlings of his flock. Now, the firstlings literally means firstborn. And what it says, um, and of their fat portions, which means prime, Prime, we're talking prime animals here. Uh, We can already see the uh, correlation to the sacrifice of Christ. We'll get into that later, but uh, see. This is the very first one ever. The very first uh, offering of anything that we ever seen recorded in Scripture. We don't know if it was the first one that actually happened, but it's the first one that's recorded. Okay, so that's what we're going by now. When the question I now want to ask is, all right. With that being the way it is, how did Abel get it right? And was Cain missed the meeting, didn't get the memo? What happened? Well, I think the answer is right back in chapter 3, verse 21. Right after the, we have the fall, and then we have the, our Lord pronouncing the curse. And then in verse 21, after the curse has been announced and everything was said... And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Well, now to get those garments, those garments of skin, some animal or animals had to die. I mean I don't think those the very first they were made with zippers. They they had to die. And so I think what we have here is in the process of clothing Adam and Eve, they were probably taught what sacrifices were all about. And so my answer then would be, how did Abel get the the word? I believe he was taught by Adam, if not God himself. Remember, God did verbally speak to these folks along the way. We can see that in God's conversation with Cain. You know, I said, verse 6, you remember when the Lord said to Cain, why why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? Yeah, so there was direct communication by God back in those early days. But then Abel got it right. Cain didn't. Well, how did Cain didn't? Well, Cain didn't get it right because he just didn't do it right. Because he didn't want to do it right. Cain wanted to do it his own way. Well, how do we know that? Well, Jude uses Cain as an example of apostates in in the book of Jude. Now what's an apostate? One that knows the truth. And decides to go their own way anyhow. Or makes it even. Could be one in the, in the context of Jude. And say Second Peter chapter 2. An apostate is, is those. That actually could have even given a profession of faith. And then later just abandoned it. And turned, just turned. <laughs> repented in the wrong direction. And went away. And then most of them never come back. He, basically I think. Cain might be the first apostate. We have recorded in scripture. That knew the truth and went his own way anyway. And 1 John, you know, John in 1 John 3.12 says, Describe Cain this way. uh, Why did Cain do what he did? Cain, this is a direct quote, Cain who was of the evil one. All right? That's why Cain didn't do it the right way. Because Cain was evil. And what do evil people do? They reject God. They reject God's way. That's what evil people do. So he was basically being... True to his nature. Fallen. True to his nature. And those of us that, that know Christ. Be thankful by his grace. He brought us out of that. And saved us from our fallen nature. Let's move on now. to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Now here we're going to see an actual type. We're going to see a type here. This is the, uh, the account of Isaac being the offering of Isaac by Abraham. And here we're going to see that Isaac then would be, um, would be a type of Christ, you know, a type being a historical event or person. This way he's an historical person. And there's many people that are types. I mean, even Adam was a type. Adam was a type of Christ, an anti-type, you know, for in Adam all die, but in Christ all alive, the first Adam, the second Adam. So Adam was actually a type of Christ as they call it an anti-type for opposite reasons. Now here though, Isaac is going to be a type of Christ. Let's look in, uh, and again, we're just going to walk through it very briefly. We probably won't read every single verse either but you'll get the picture. Well, you know the story. The Lord came to, to Abraham and this is this is like, it was it called, it's called a test, it's called a trial. This is where Abraham's faith was really proven this day it was proven he went through many tests he failed some of them he went through many tests and trials but here where abraham's faith is proven and it also serves for us as a type isaac being a type of christ and abraham in essence being a type of the father you'll see that as we move through now it came about after these things that god tested abraham and said to him this genesis 22 1 said abraham And he said, here I am. And he said, note the wording here. Take now your son, your only son. Now this is repeated two more times in this passage. Verse 12, it says, in the back, this is after he passed the test. Do not stretch. I mean, we're stop me? Do not stretch your hand against the and Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then verse 16. Again, you have not withheld your son, your only son. It just keeps pounding that your son, your only son. Does it make you think of anything? Um, your son, your only son. Uh, how about for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see the type forming already. The the type of <clears throat> of Isaac being a type of Christ. And then so verse 3 said, so Abraham rose up early. They went. He got wood and everything for the offering. They got it. I'm just going to highlight so we don't eat up too much of the clock here. And it took a three-day journey, and they got to the point... With, well, oh, verse 2, excuse me, verse 2. I almost forgot a, one of the most important verses. He said, Now take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a, as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will tell you. So there's a bunch of Mount, Mount Moriah. Now, the land of Moriah. Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us that on Mount Moriah... Solomon built the temple. Guess what else is in that area? A little place called Golgotha, which I I checked it out, which is approximately, Golgotha is about a 400-yard walk from the temple grounds to where Jesus was crucified. Anyway, in that area of Mount Moriah, whether it was the actual temple site, whether it was actually a crucifixion site, or somewhere in between, I don't we don't know for sure, but all I know is where in that place, in that spot, that area of Mount Moriah, where Abraham was to do this sacrifice, the Lamb of God was sacrificed right there. And if at the very least, the temple where Sacrifices of lambs, picturing the one lamb to come, was done. So I mean, it's it's all right there. The picture is there. The picture is there. And so Abraham went, and so they got to the the foot of the mountain where they were going. And Abraham said to his young, he took two men with him, plus Isaac. Now you stay here with the donkey, and I and and and, uh, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship, and return to you. Okay, I want to stop right there. We will worship and return to you. Now, I want to compare that very quickly now with written Hebrews 11. You know, Hebrews 11 is that chapter about the Old Testament saints, about the faithful Old Testament saints. I'm just going to read a passage out. So you don't have to turn there. But eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he would have received the promises. Now, see, Abraham, Isaac was the... the, was a, the of the promise, He was the son of the promise, not Ishmael. He had received the promises, was offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, Isaac, your descendant shall be called. In Isaac, your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people from the dead. That was Abraham saying. Abraham was willing to go through with this thing. And Abraham figured, hey, if nothing else... God is going to raise Isaac from the dead, and then we're going to come back down. So he was confident, one way or another, Isaac was coming back down with him. He and he considered the people raised from the dead, and here's the quote, from which he also received him back. Received Isaac, Abraham received him, Isaac back, and it says, as a type, a type of what? A type of resurrection. Now put it in the context of the type here given here in chapter 22 of Genesis. Isaac being a type of Christ, him being given back to Abraham his father was a type too of the resurrection of Christ and therefore our resurrection too as well. So Isaac was there in the type of the resurrection. There's another type coming up here. in or Part of the whole picture of Isaac being a type in verse 6 of Genesis 22, it says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand fire and a knife. And the two of them walked on together. Remember, they're down there with the two guys and the donkey says, you guys stay here. Me and my son are going up. We shall return. He put the bundle of wood on Isaac to carry. And Abraham took the fire, probably a torch and the knife okay? Remember, it was what well, we hear in Acts. Who was it that brought Christ? This was predetermined by the hand of God. And so here's another term. Isaac, who was to be sacrificed on the altar, carried the wood. Jesus, who was to be sacrificed as our Lamb of God, carried the wooden cross. This is coincidence? No, I don't think so. Is there coincidences? The, how many coincidences you find in the Bible? Yeah, none. <laughs> the type. Wow. Look at verses seven and eight. Interesting here, and Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, "My father." And he said, "Here I am, son." And uh, he said, "Behold the fire." This is Isaac talking. "Behold the fire in the wood, but uh, where's the lamb?" For the burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself, the lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. I mean, it's amazing. God will provide. And that's that statement's coming up again, so I'll just hang on for now. And you look at verses 9 through 13. It said, then, it came to the, then they came to the place, which... Which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound and bound his son. Remember, I don't know if you've seen the little pictures of it. Isaac was no little kid. He was a he was an adult. He was not some little baby boy. He was not some. He could he carried the wood. Okay, that was the heavy part of the deal. He carried the wood. And Abraham again, they put him on the altar. Verse ten, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Must have been a popular response in those days. But uh, one little question. Anybody remember from your previous Old Testament studies, like who in the Old Testament was referred to as the angel of the Lord? Pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. So it was Christ who would become the ultimate sacrifice is now speaking out from heaven saying, stop, Abraham, stop. It's interesting that the eventual lamb of God spared, you know, stopped this whole process, which God would have never done anyway. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked up and behold, and behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Then Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Um, You've heard the word Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh. That's this one. That's one of the names of the many names given to God in the Old Testament. The Lord will provide and it is said to this day so Moses being the writer of, of, uh, of Genesis so to the day of Moses that that place on Mount Moriah has been, was named and known as the place where the Lord will provide. Interesting statement that follows that last phrase there says in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Are we looking ahead? Perhaps it sounds like looking forward to me. We wow, and I said that's why I'm 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 confident that on that same mount of the that the temple sacrifices were held, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, was done as well. But to me, it doesn't have to be on the exact square foot. You know, it there, it was there, and uh, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called from heaven a second time, said, "Behold, I have sworn," declares the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son. And that is once again emphasized. Okay. Now, the rams and stuff, we're not going to deal with the ram. It has no real significance here. That um, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, again, the name. Um, so now let's go to Genesis, no, excuse me, Exodus 12. Looking at Exodus 12, we have the first Passover. The very first Passover, and I'm just going to say very few things on here. Uh, due the uh, due to time, but um, the picture is clear. Uh, remember, remember the the account here. This is the, the remember the ten plagues in Egypt. This was the final plague, the plague of the killing of the firstborn and those who believed were to they had their Passover lamb they brought that lamb into the house that lamb was to be slaughtered that and the blood of that lamb was put in a bowl and a portion of that blood was said to be put on the doorpost and if you picture the door of the house they'd be up the sideboards across you know the header and down the other side so blood was covering the door the entrance and so we know what happened in verse 5. There's some, there some things that had to be about this lamb. It wasn't just any old lamb again. Remember, going back to Abel. What, what did Abel pick? The firstling of the flock. The fat thereof. The best. The firstborn. Firstling. Verse 5, of, of, Exodus five of, of, of Exodus 12. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Unblemished male. What did Peter say? Well, Peter 1, 18 to 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of, of life, in, inherited from your, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And he goes, the blood of Christ. Again, this lamb pictured the ultimate lamb of God that was to come and did come. Our Savior. See that? I mean, the, these things, again, nothing here is is—it's past. They, again, the blood, and then so we know what happened. The blood was put on the doorposts, and we'll just, we'll just stop right there for now, but notice that the picture of that, just the total picture. Those lives that were spared, were spared because they were basically covered by the blood of the Lamb. They were covered by the blood of the Lamb, and in the same way, the same way the, the picture of, you know, blood and cup saved their human lives of those firstborn, those covered by the blood were freed, that those same people were also freed, by, freed from the captivity, just like the blood of Jesus Christ saves us from the captivity of sin and judgment that follows sin. I mean, it's there. It's, and there's one additional prophetic point in this, and that's verse 46 of Exodus 12 where it talks about the lamb again, this instructions are given two or three times, It just repeat, repeat, repeat because this is a very important thing but in verse 46, the very last phrase, speaking of that lamb nor are you to break any bone of it and we know from John 19, his account of the uh, crucifixion remember at the end when It was time that they wanted to clear out the bodies because the Passover was getting deep into the Passover and the the elders were squawking. So John 19, 32 and 33 says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Again, that lamb, which was a picture of, of Christ, um, again, no bone shall be broken. Same too, during all the torture that Christ went through, not one of his bones were broken. About everything else happened to him that could happen to him under the sun in terms of torture, but not that. Not that. Again, Scripture is so consistent with itself now let's run into the move back to the New Testament, the Gospel of luke we're going to work our way, just walk back in and i'm going to have to skip most of what I've got here, but it's okay.'ll we'll start with the Gospel of Luke chapter nine and we'll just pick off some phrases, and most of this speaks for itself anyway, and like I say we're just going to <clears throat> Nine eighteen to twenty two. Okay, the scene here is uh, well, you're familiar with. Uh, I think the most familiar one is the. It, it, this is in Matthew, but where? <clears throat> remember, Jesus turned to his disciples and says, "Well, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" And he goes, "Well, some say you're John the Baptist, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, you know." And then he goes, "Well, who do you say that I am?" And uh, and uh, Peter pops up and says, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Okay, now Luke is a, a little bit shorter version of that. But then at the end of that, verse 21 of Luke, let's pick it up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 9. He says, but he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Well, why? Because the focus of Jesus' ministry was now changing. Um, in my Bible, it's on the same page. If you look across on your page, you'll see the event preceding this was the feeding of the 5,000 this is a good the feeding of the 5000 is one of those good little landmarks or benchmarks in your in your new testaments because all four gospels have that account of feeding of the 5000 and that feeding of the 5000 took place approximately 6 months prior to the crucifixion so it gives you a good time frame so you hit that there we like 6 months to go so the focus of Jesus is he, and you can see here he no longer Moves to the, the crowds keep following him, so he keeps speaking to him from time to time, but his focus is now changing. And why is it? Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And he spells out what's coming. He spells out what's coming. This is what he was born for, and he knows it. He knew it from the very beginning. He knows it. I mean, we're nine, still in chapter nine. Look at verse uh, 43. Uh, where they were still, the crowds were following them and they, they were, and people were there were actually saying, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> the, the, you know, all things, they, they again, the show, they, they wanted the show. They wanted the show. Matter of fact, in John chapter six, it points it out beautifully that many of the people that witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 were asking for, show us a miracle. <laughs> Give us a sign, you know, Oh, man. So they were marveling at what he did. In verse 44, Jesus said this. Let these words... Listen to this. this. is interesting. Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I mean, again, let this sink in here. I've come here. I didn't come here to put on a show. I came here to die. I mean, he just... Said, and this, this message goes on in 51... Um, you know, it, the, the whole it just keeps going. Verse 51 says, and it, this is Luke now, and it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, that's ascending back into heaven, that's after the crucifixion and resurrection, that he resolutely, or resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was focused. This was his main focus right now. Ever since that a statement of faith by Peter. The last month, he was focused. Going to Jerusalem to be that sacrificial lamb. And um, let's jump forward a little bit more. Um, which ones do I skip, for crying out loud? Uh, Luke 17. We'll just, we got to do one. Luke 17, verse 22. And again, Old and New Testament, this is the again, This. What was going on here, this is one of the most important points in all redemption history. That's why it is so emphasized. We, and that's what we're celebrating this morning. One of the most, this, the most important event in all of redemption history. 1722. And he said to his disciple, the day shall come when you will long to see uh, one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not, you will not see it. And they will say, and they will say to you. And now he's he's starting teaching about his second coming. He says, they will say to you, look there, look here. See, he's speaks to the people like when he's gone, people are going to be eager to see him return. They're going to want to see him again. But he says, don't be fooled. Look here, look there. Do not go away and do not run after them. And then in verse twenty four of Luke seventeen, for just as the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man. In other words, when I come back, you're not gonna miss nobody's gonna miss it. Verse twenty five, though, is what we really want to look at to this morning, and that is, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then chapter eighteen. Verse 31 to 33. And he took. Now here's now they're, right, they're right outside of town. Getting ready to go into Jerusalem. 1831 to 33 says. And he took the 12 aside and said. And behold we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written. Again. All things which are written through the prophets. About the son of man will be accomplished. Remember again, We saw a taste of it. Coming through. Verse 32, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And believe it or not, we're right back on track. Luke chapter 22. He was outside of Jerusalem. We go into Jerusalem. We call it Passion Week. And now... In chapter 22, we are at the Last Supper. We're at the Last Supper. Luke twenty-two, nineteen and 20. And <clears throat> when, he gave, when he had uh, taken some bread and had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Two big points right here. Verse 19. This is my body, which is given for you. Given. Not taken. Given. That speaks loudly of substitutionary enjoyment. He says, I give it to you given and verse 20 a cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood that's what he's saying there for you again substitutionary atonement reemphasized for you on your behalf we can't do it he's doing it in our place nobody nobody else could do it only a perfect god could do it who else could be spotless but God. We're all, anything born of man is tainted. It had to be God. That new, and then he says, the new, and he emphasized the new covenant. And this is a key point too. At this last supper, the old covenant was, was coming to an end and the new covenant would be inaugurated with his death. The new covenant would be inaugurated with his death and resurrection, Jesus was in fact changing the Passover celebration to the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, whatever you want to call it. This is what's going on. This is a big deal. At this Last Supper, he was changing what was the Passover meal to the Lord's Table, which we're going to celebrate in a few minutes. Again, big deal, big deal. And that's what Jesus did. He 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 changed it he says, in my blood. He says, this is a covenant in my blood, not some lamb's blood. Those were just pictures. Those were just symbolic of what of Jesus. But Jesus was the real thing. Jesus is what all these how many hundreds of thousands or millions of lambs over the centuries were, were slaughtered for were all picturing him. All picturing him. That is no longer needed. The picture is now complete. Again, what did Jesus say? Think not that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I don't come to abolish, but to fulfill. This was a fulfillment right here. He was the fulfillment of all that Passover stuff. And now the Passover meal has been changed. We don't look forward to that lamb being slaughtered. We look back to the lamb that took away our sins. See, that's why, again, by celebrating the Lord's Supper we are remembering the most significant moment in redemption history. Therefore, it should not be taken lightly. We should never want this ordinance to be something that we periodically take or, or even tack on to an end of a church service. And again, I hope, I hope we never fall victim of that. And I, I haven't seen that here, but I know it's just it can happen. Things like that happen. And again... I just want to restate that this is a very important thing we do. Something that should be a time that, well, well, like the one song pointed out, a little bit of sadness, but yet a lot of rejoicing as well. Kind of a little bit of both. It's our sin that caused it, but it's a sacrifice is why we have eternal life. And without it, we'd have nothing. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we... Again, we we speak. We look to you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, so much for your sacrifice, what you have done for us, and um, and Father. Uh, again, as we prepare now to go to communion and celebrate your table, again, may we be found worthy, and may you be praised through this whole thing in Jesus' name. Amen.